Uh, What a blessing it is to be with God's people this morning in the presence of a God who, no matter how many times we wander from him, uh, continually calls us back home. And uh, how grace, uh, to grace how great a debtor we all are, and I want to talk about that debt to grace today. I want to try to make sense of something that tends to give us some fits sometimes. Last week we talked about that grace of God and the overpowering love of God. And I asked the question at the end, how do we respond to all of this, knowing that we can be confident in our salvation because of what he's done for us? What does he then ask from us in return? And and people have all kinds of problems trying to navigate through all this. And I'm hoping that what we can do today is take an issue that sometimes seems fuzzy to us and bring it into sharper focus. And the way I would like to do that is by looking at Uh, one passage in particular, and what it tells us about the intersection between grace, faith, and good works. And we're going to be looking at a lot of passages today, so if you've got your Bibles, I hope you'll get them out, and I hope you will follow along. To everyone who is watching from at home online this morning, we're glad you took time to be a part of our service with us this morning, and I hope uh, that this is a benefit to you. If you have any comments or questions, you can please uh, leave them in the comment section below, and we will see to those as soon as we can. Everybody here, if you're not already in the habit of doing so, if you are on Facebook, I think it would be beneficial to remind yourself at the beginning of every service, take your phone out, share this to your own Facebook page so that we can get uh, the message out to as many people as possible and increase our social media presence. Don't discount uh, the value that our presence on social media has. I'm not a huge social media guy, but I know through COVID, when a lot of us couldn't gather together, it was amazing how many people were reached through things like Facebook live streams, through our YouTube channel, through efforts like that. And so please be a part of that effort just to share the word with as many people as possible. We are saved by grace through faith for good works. Let's talk about that this morning. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me, if you would. This is where we're going to take the bulk of our lesson this morning, or at least what I want to anchor our conversation this morning. In Ephesians chapter 2, and actually I'm going to start in verse 1, and I want you to follow along with me and pay attention to the words that Paul uses as he talks about our relationship with God. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, the two most powerful words you will ever hear in your life are those two words right there. But God. But God, being rich in Mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, a God who is abundant in love and mercy. We're going to talk more about that next week, but this is what Paul is reminding us of. But God, because he was rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then almost as an aside, he says this, by grace, you have been saved. He's going to revisit that in just a second. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then we get down to the meat of what we're talking about this morning. Paul famously says in verses 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved 
through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is, what does he say? The gift of God. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in this passage, Paul makes two things abundantly clear. Number one, our salvation is entirely the work of God. He frames it as a gift, and we'll talk about that more in just a second. But our salvation is entirely the work of God. And the second thing that he talks about is though, even though our work does not accomplish our salvation, there is still a place for good works in the life of the believer. That these two things are not at odds with each other. And so how do we make sense of all of that? And real quickly this morning, I want to walk you through something that has been very helpful for me as I've tried to make sense out of all of this. And it's to pay particular attention to the vocabulary that Paul uses in this passage. And here's what I mean by that. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And then if you skip down, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is the vocabulary I want to bring to your attention. Number one, we are saved by grace. Grace is the thing that saves us. What is it that saves us? And you respond, grace. It is God's grace that saves us. And what's been helpful for me in my walk with God, help me make better sense out of some of the things in Scripture that I wrestle with, is we tend to ask exactly that question. What saves us? Well, God's grace saves us. But I think a more appropriate question to ask is actually, who saves us? It is God that saves us. His grace saves us. It is redirecting attention away from those things we do to what it is that God has done. And if you survey the entire story of Scripture, it is a story of man continually being unfaithful, but a God who will never fail in His faithfulness, who is always working to redeem His creation and calling us back home to Him. It is about the work that God is doing in and through us. We are saved by grace. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, and this is a passage I think some of you probably have in your mind. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but also are justified by his grace as a, what? What's the word he uses? As a gift. We all fall short of the glory of God because of our own sinfulness. We have all rebelled against God. We've all turned away from his will. We've all uh, 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 transgressed his purity in one way or another in our lives. But what also is true is this, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this idea of grace as a gift is so fundamental to our understanding of salvation we tend to fall into the trap of thinking of salvation as a transaction. And it's not. It's not a trade that we make with God. God doesn't say, here, I will offer you salvation, and in return, this is what you're going to give me to pay for that salvation. But that's exactly what we reduce it to a lot of times in our own lives. I have found it to be true in my ministry that many of us in the Lord's church struggle with anxiety when it comes to our own relationship with God. We are anxious about our own salvation. And I think the reason we are anxious is because we get all of this backwards. 
We believe that God has the power to save us, but we also, in the back of our minds, believe that we have to pay him somehow for that ability to save us. That he has given us this gift, but now we've got to pay for the gift through our own behavior and purity and obedience. As if Christ is going to return one day and we're going to stand before that judgment seat and he's going to say, okay, pay up. And we're going to say, okay, here's a list of everything good we ever did. Does it stack up? Have I done enough good to be able to purchase my salvation from you? And when we think of salvation in those transactional terms, that's where the anxiety comes in because we realize then that in the end of the day, can any of us ever afford God's salvation? Have any of us worked enough to earn enough credits to be able to pay for salvation? No. The wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. This is what we've earned in our lives, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a gift. And I want to remind you of that today. If you are anxious about your relationship with God because in the back of your mind you're still feeling like, I haven't done enough to get there. Let me remind you that you never will. You never will. Salvation is a gift from God. We have got to put salvation back in the hands of the only one who can accomplish it. And that is God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's pay attention to Paul's vocabulary. As we think about the relationship between grace and faith and works, it's all anchored in our understanding, first of all, of grace. We are saved by grace. We are saved by God's love and mercy. We are saved by grace. So it is grace that saves us, but we are saved through faith. How do we respond to God's grace? How do we respond to that gift? And I want you to think about faith as an act of trust. We respond by trusting that God can save us and that he will save us and that that promise has been made to us, and he's not going to take that promise back. It is a trust in the grace of God that produces faith within us. If you think about, about it in these terms, in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is on his way to heal someone's child, and the crowds are pressing in on him, and this woman approaches him who has had this discharge of blood for 12 years and she's been to all the doctors and nobody can help her and you remember the story she gets close enough to Jesus that what does she do she touches what his garment right and he says he feels the power come out of him and, and she's healed as a result of it and Jesus turns and he says who was it that touched me and you remember the apostles are like well <laughs> there's a million people here I don't know who touched you but he's not talking about, he's not mad because somebody bumped into him inadvertently. He knows what just happened and he's trying to draw attention to it. And finally, the woman is there. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 8, verses 47 and 48. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. But what I want to draw your attention to is Jesus' response to all this. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, was it, was it her faith that saved her? No, it was Jesus and the power within him that saved her, right? But it was her trust in that power that brought her to the working grace of God. And this is exactly what Paul's trying to get us to understand. It is grace that saves us, but it's our trust in that grace, our trust 
in the promises God has made, our trust in God's power to save that draw us in to him. Faith is an act of trust. Do you trust in God's saving power? If you do, then what do we do next? We are saved by grace, we are saved through faith, and we are saved for good works. So, if we're not saved by our own works, then why is it that our behavior even matters? Why is it that we are so encouraged throughout Scripture to act in a certain way? And why is it that we have a tendency as people to read the Bible primarily as a rule book and then narrow the whole thing down to just a handful of things that we have to do? If I go to church so many times, right? if I pray enough, if I study enough, if I evangelize enough, if I do enough things, then God will be pleased with me. Right? It's right back to that transactional process of salvation that we've got locked in our heads. Why is it that we are encouraged to good works? We have been saved for good works. If you look again at what he says in Ephesians, listen to what he says. Not as a result of works so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were literally created to be about doing the good work of God. You remember, cast your mind back to the scene in the garden. How is it that we were created? In whose image? In God's image. In the image of God, he created them. Man and woman, he created them. What does it mean to be created in the image of God that we all look like him? It means that he gave us a task to do to spread his goodness throughout his creation, through those works that we engage in. But here's the rub. We are not working so that we can accomplish salvation. We are working as a result of the salvation we've already been gifted. And those are two very different approaches towards our Christian walk. If you have got it in your mind that salvation is a transaction and that you can offer your gifts to God and he will repay you with the gift of his own, you will always be disappointed. And what happens when you think that way is what I've seen happen with too many Christians is they reduce it all to... Basically, the question they ask is this, what is the least I can do in order to be justified? You understand what I'm saying? What is the least I can do in order to be justified? Listen to what Jesus himself says in John chapter 15. He says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. You cannot bear fruit, Jesus is saying, unless, what? You abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, let's, let's all say this out loud together, okay? For apart from me, you can do nothing. When you talk about whatever good works it is that we might be engaged in, even they are a gift from God. He gives us His Spirit, and that Spirit is at work within us to produce those things that God wants to see with us. But if we're not remained attached to the vine, then that fruit is never going to be produced. What are we saved by? What are we saved by? Grace. What are we saved through? Faith, our trust in God's 
salvation. And what are we saved for? Good works. What happens if we get that backwards? What if we believe we are saved by good works? Then you get a bunch of really, really anxious Jesus followers. Because I'm, I'm frustrated because I'm not doing enough good work. And I'm frustrated because I'm failing. And I'm frustrated because of all these different things, because of all this anxiety I've got that I'm just not doing enough for him. And you never will. Salvation is a gift. We are saved by grace. We are saved through faith. And we are saved for good works. Okay, now having said all that, that is a very, very simplistic approach to this, and I understand that, right? And we can explore it for as long as you guys want in the future. But this is a passage that has helped me reframe those things that give me anxiety to quit trying to take salvation. It's, in my mind, it's like this, and maybe you can relate. God has done most of the work of saving me, but I've got to help him do just that little bit to get him the rest of the way, right? And then I get frustrated because I'm not doing it on my own. Salvation is a gift from God. So the question I have for you this morning is, do you trust in the saving work of God? And are you willing to submit to him so that he can be about his work through your life, bearing fruit in you? I want you to think kind of in an abstract way with me this morning. And maybe I haven't earned enough trust from you to do this yet, but I hope hope you will humor me and consider a couple things this morning, okay? Number one, how do we bring all this to a way, kind of a practical level to help it all make sense? And I think baptism is a perfect way to, to view all of this and kind of bring it to a close, okay? So in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 21, Paul says something that gives people a lot of problems. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Baptism now saves you. Well, how can that be? If God's grace saves us, then how can it be that baptism saves us? I talk about baptism a lot. You will hear that from me. I talk about baptism a lot because the New Testament authors talk about baptism a lot. John talked about baptism a lot, so much that he got the nickname John the Baptist, right? Jesus talked about baptism a lot. Peter talked about baptism a lot. Paul talked about baptism a lot. We read about baptism a lot in the book of Acts, so I'm going to talk about it a lot because the Bible talks about it a lot. One of the things I love seeing in the landscape around us today, there's, there's a lot of things to be worried about in mainstream American Christianity. But one of the things I'm so encouraged by is that there is a a rise of new kind of independent thinking churches in the landscape, especially in Southern California. They don't affiliate with any specific denomination any longer. They don't title themselves accordingly. They're independent in their thinking. And one of the things a lot of them have in common is you hear them talking about baptism more than they ever have before. Kind of like we did a couple hundred years ago in our own restoration movement when we were like, hey, Scripture says something here that we've not been paying attention to. That process is still at work in the landscape around us, and I'm excited about that. But there's still a certain number of people that struggle mightily with baptism because when you start to use the words baptism and salvation in the same sentence, we've got a problem. Because baptism is a work, and we are not saved by what? Works. Well, 
Peter puts those two words in the same sentence, and he doesn't seem to have any problem doing it. How can that be? Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 with me, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 18. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. If, if that's the only thing you understand about salvation, that's a good start. We do not bring ourselves to God. He brings us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now Peter's going to do something surprising here. He's going to reframe the way that we think about the flood. When you think about the flood, do you think about it in terms of God's righteousness being revealed? Do you think about the flood as an act of salvation? Most of us don't. We think about the flood as an act of destruction, an act of judgment, right? What did God do when he flooded the earth? He destroyed evil on the earth, right? Except that that's not all he did, was it? What else did God do through the flood? He saved Noah and his family. God preserved righteousness through the flood. And so the flood is no longer just an act of destruction. It's an act of salvation, Peter reminds us of that in what he says here. He says, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, that's Noah and his family, were brought safely through water. In other words, God used water to save his people. And Peter's going to use that as a way to talk about baptism. So he says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. But then listen to what he says. Not as, a res not, as, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. If in baptism we believe that we are doing something to ourselves in order to accomplish our own salvation, then baptism becomes a work. And it is something to be rejected. But that's not how Peter talks about baptism here, is it? Peter talks about baptism as what? As an act of faith. It is an act of trust in God. It is not a removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God. What is it that we're doing in baptism? We are reacting to God's grace. It itself is an act of faith. It's not a work. It's not a work of the law, certainly. It's not something we're doing to ourselves. In baptism, we are submitting to the redeeming work of God through Christ and saying, God, I cannot save myself. Because you have asked me to do that, I will submit to it. And I am making an appeal to God to be at work through the waters of baptism so that I can experience salvation. When you think of it in the way that Peter is framing the whole subject here. There is no struggle any longer between baptism as a work and salvation by grace. When God told Noah to build the ark, what did Noah do? He built the ark. By building the ark in order to be saved through that flood, was Noah rebelling against the grace of God and trying to accomplish salvation on his own terms? No, he was submitting to the redeeming work of God. When we read all these commandments in Scripture to put Christ on in baptism, 
When we respond to that in faith, we're not saying, okay, look, I can do something to accomplish my own salvation. We're doing the exact opposite. We are submitting to the saving work of God. We're doing what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. We are recognizing that we are saved by grace through faith. And so we respond in faith. We put him on in baptism. And we acknowledge that it's only the work of God that could ever take our sins away. Now, can we get that wrong? Yeah, we can. And I think people do and, and have. I've known people in my life who, for them, baptism was literally Willy Wonka's golden ticket. It had nothing to do with a relationship with God. It had nothing to do with a leaning into the saving work of God through Christ. It was a thing they did, and when Christ returns, they're going to show him that baptismal certificate, and they get free entrance into heaven. It's easy to think of baptism in those terms if we've got this carnal mind that is fixated on works as a means to which we save ourselves. But when we reject that man-made way of thinking about salvation and understand that salvation belongs only to our God and Father, then in faith, as an act of trust, we submit ourselves to God's redeeming work through the waters of baptism where, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6, we come in contact with the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. We are immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. And in that water, we join uh, Christ in his death, but also in his what? In his resurrection. So what does Paul say in Romans chapter 6? He uses that awesome turn of phrase, so that you too may walk in, you remember what he says? Newness of life. Who is it that brings about that newness in our lives? It's God. It's God. And so I, I hope that this helps you kind of put some puzzle pieces together. The world has a problem with using the words baptism and salvation in the same sentence because they view baptism purely as a work, but it's not. It is a work, but it's not a work of our own. It's a work of God and what he is doing on our behalf through the blood of Christ. Okay, so something else I want you to think about. I said at the beginning of the lesson, I'm going to uh, try to bring something into sharper focus. I think so much of what we do in the Lord's Church centers around our heads. It centers around logic. How can we take Scripture and make it make sense, right? And so a lot of what we do is an appeal directly to your heads. But does God work entirely just on our heads, or does he work on our hearts as well? He works on our hearts, right? And so I, I want to encourage you this morning to think about that reality. That not everything is logical. In fact, some things, when it comes to faith, are beyond our logical grasp. Right? Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The redeeming work of God through Christ Jesus our Lord is so much bigger than our brains can put in a box. It's not a math equation. It's not something to be solved. It's bigger than that. And so I want you to think about that this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Turn over there with me if you would. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 15. Listen to what Paul says. A couple more passages from Ephesians. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of 
him. So it's all about knowledge, right? It's all about what we have up here. But then listen to what he says in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have the eyes of your hearts enlightened? He's talking about an ex- something you experience only in here. There's what we can know about God up here, but then there's what we can experience about God in here. And Paul is praying for them that they can have both of those things. A knowledge of God and a love of God that dwells in their hearts. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. And my prayer for you today is that the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened. That you can move past just thinking about God in logical terms and open yourself up to the way that you can experience him in your hearts. One more passage from Ephesians in chapter 3 this time, if you turn over there. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, listen to what he says, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. He's talking about knowing God's love, that this thing that is so big we can't wrap our heads around it is something that now we know. We know it so well that now it's got dimensions, right? I can give you a blueprint for God's love. I can tell you how big it is and how long it is and how wide it is and how deep it is. But there's a limit to my head knowledge. There's a limit to the way that I understand God up here, especially when it comes to his love. And this is how I know that. Listen to what he says in verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Now, come on, Paul, you're just being mean at this point. How are we supposed to know something that surpasses knowledge? Any ideas? How do you know something that can't be known? That's what Paul is saying. That we can finally have a relationship with God so deep and so profound and so intimate that we can know him in a way that we can't know him. How does that possibly make sense? And I think what Paul's getting at here is the idea that, that there's things about God and his nature and his love and his mercy and his grace that the only way to truly know them is to experience them. They have to be experienced. And so as God is working on you, it's not just a matter of what you know. He's not saying, hey, I need you to memorize these facts about me. He's drawing us into relationship with him. Let me ask you this. How many of you know your spouses well? How many of you could explain your spouses to another person? Right? I know Robin because we've been married for 20 years. Can I explain her to you? No. 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 That's not saying anything negative about her. Right? There's just things that You can't possibly know that I know because I've experienced a relationship with her for so long. 
And that's what Paul's talking about, our relationship with God. And so I want to give you an open invitation this morning to allow yourself the opportunity to use your head and your heart. And to realize that God might be working up here to help you know things, but he's also working in here to help you know things. <laughs> to know the things that you can't know up here. To experience him. And so if you are seeking after a relationship with God right now, and you're, you're seeking after him and you're putting pieces of a puzzle together and you're treating it like a math equation, and if I just know enough, then I'll finally crack the code and I'll figure it all out. Please understand that he's not just working up here. He's working in here. And I want, I want you to open up yourself to that possibility. The other thing is this. You ever thought to yourself, I just wish God would give me a sign? I experienced that recently, right? As we were invited by the elders to come work with you all, and I'm glad we said yes, but there was a lot of uncertainty on our behalf, right? I, I really grew to love the elders and their vision for the congregation here and the, the few times we had to worship with you all. Unbelievably encouraging group, honestly, you are. So it was exciting, right? But in order to do that, we would have to say goodbye to people that we love dearly. And how do we know that that's God's will and not just something that I want to do, right? And I prayed earnestly to God, help me know what your will is. And I wish that he would have like sent me an email or given me a call early in the morning or you know, appeared to me in some miraculous way. But that's not the way God communicates to us, is it? Sometimes we want a sign, but the signs are right there in front of us. And I, I, want, I want to suggest one other thing to you this morning that I want you to think about critically and just consider, okay? That sometimes in our search for a sign from God, we're not paying attention to all the signs from God. In Acts chapter 16, verses 9 through 10, Paul is engaged in one of his missionary journeys, and he's prevented by the Spirit from going into a specific place he wants to go. And then he goes to sleep at night, and he has a dream or a vision. And it says this in Acts chapter 16, verses 9 and 10. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Christ himself had called Paul by name on the road to Damascus, right? Paul was no stranger to direct revelation from God. But in this dream he has, he sees a sign from God. And what I want you to think about here is, until you really take time to think about it, you might skip right over it. God doesn't appear to Paul in a dream. A man from Macedonia appears to Paul in a dream. And the story of God communicating to man in the story of Scripture is not God miraculously and directly revealing himself to every individual that ever walked the face of the earth, is it? Are there people that God directly revealed himself to? Of course there are. But not everyone. Most of the time when God is revealing himself to a person, he's revealing himself to a person through another person person. In this case, Paul is giving a message, or excuse me, God is giving a message to Paul through this man that appears to him in a dream. Think about in Acts chapter 8, that great story of the Ethiopian eunuch. 
right? The Spirit tells Philip to go up to this man. He's on a desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, and he goes up to him in the chariot, and this Ethiopian eunuch, a, a court official from the Queen of Candace, Queen of the Ethiopians, he's in charge of all their treasure. He's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 to be exact. He's reading from that, and you remember what happens? Philip goes up to him, and what's the question he asks him? Do you remember? Do you understand what you're reading? You remember his answer? How can I unless somebody teaches me? And it says, beginning with that scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Here is a man seeking after the will of God, wanting to know. Do you guys know Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage? It's a beautiful messianic portrayal. And this man wants to know who is he talking about, himself or someone else. I want to know who this suffering servant is. But God does not give him direct revelation. He gives him Philip. That's who he gives him. And Philip takes that passage, and beginning with that passage, he preaches Jesus to him. And we don't know everything that he talked about, but we know one thing for certain, because the next thing that's recorded for us is, mind you, they're on a desert road. They come to some what? Water. And he sees the water, and he asks the question, look, water. What does he ask? What prevents me from being baptized. This man is searching after the will of God, wanting to know what God's will in his life is, and God sends him Philip. I say all that just to say, I want you to consider that every time you hear the gospel proclaimed, every time you hear it taught in a class, every time you have a Bible study with someone, every time someone preaches a gospel message to you, that when they are sharing the good news of Jesus with you, consider that that's your sign. That this is what you've been looking for. This is God telling you what he wants from you. And if you have not yet given your life to Christ this morning, then what I'd really like you to consider is that what he's telling you this morning is that he wants you to submit to him. That he wants you to submit to his saving work in your life. And he wants you to trust in him to put your faith in him as Redeemer. He has work for you to do. But it's not work he's asking for you to do on your own. It's work that he is willing to give his spirit to you to equip you to accomplish that work. And if you have not yet submitted to him, how do you do that? Through the waters of baptism. Repent of your sins. Confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior and put him on in baptism this morning. If you're waiting for a sign, this might be the only one you're going to get. Look, water. What prevents you from being baptized this morning? Listen, my job is not just to give you information. It's not just to help you make sense out of things or more than likely probably confuse you even more. But my job isn't just an an information giver, right? Do you remember what John said at the end of his gospel? He said, There are a lot of other things Jesus did in the presence of the apostles that I could have recorded, but I didn't. I recorded these so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. My job is not just to present you with information. I am trying to persuade you of something. I am trying to persuade you that God is good, that Christ is your Redeemer, And that he has a will for you. And he is inviting you to be his. Let me persuade you of that reality this morning. 
So we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. And I want you to think about all this. I want you to ask yourself the question, what, what is he calling me to do this morning? Maybe he's calling you to trust in him more fully. Maybe you've never put him on in baptism yet, and I'm confident that what he is calling you to do right now is to take that step and to put him on in baptism and begin your walk with him, begin that brand new life in him. The invitation is extended, and the invitation is yours. And if you're one of those people who freaks out about doing things publicly and in front of people, that's fine. Come and grab me afterwards. Let's study. Let's talk. But you survey God who is calling you home. Will you respond to the invitation this morning? Let's stand and let's sing this song. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, heroes and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. So take me as you find me, all my fears and failures. Fill my life again. I give my life to follow everything I believe in. Now I serve. Salvation, heroes and 